Good morning, everybody. Look up here, please. Let's begin by reading one of the most amazing statements ever given in human history. Seriously, one of the most amazing things ever spoken. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. What was intended for evil has been used for great good. This was spoken by Joseph to his brothers. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, and if it's possible for that story to get any uglier, he ended up in unfairly imprisoned. This is a horrible situation, and yet, at the time he speaks this, Joe has become this perfectly positioned force to keep God's promises alive. I'd like you to read again what Joe says. This is what Joseph says to those who harmed him. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. San Antonio pastor Max Lucado has a great way with words. Um, look at his analysis. This is his analysis of Genesis 50, 20. Nothing in Joseph's story glosses over the presence of evil. Quite the contrary. Blood stains, tear stains are everywhere. Joseph's heart was rubbed raw against the rocks of disloyalty and miscarried justice. Yet time and time again, God redeemed the pain. The torn robe became a royal one. The pit became a palace. The broken family grew old together. The very acts intended to destroy God's servant turned out to strengthen him. You meant evil against me, Joseph told his brothers, using a Hebrew verb that traces its meaning to weave or plait. You wove evil, he was saying, but God rewove it together for good. God, the master weaver. He stretches the yarn and intertwines the colors, the ragged twine with the velvet strings, the pains with the pleasures. Nothing escapes his reach. Every king, despot, weather pattern, and molecule are at his command. He passes the shuttle back and forth across the generations, and as he does, a design emerges. Satan weaves, God reweaves, close quote. Doesn't he tell the story well? He speaks so well, it reminds me of an old Steve Martin routine. Uh, Steve Martin had a routine one time where he said, some people have a way with words, others uh, mm, not have way. Um, Max has a way with words. Here's how Lucado or one of his staff finished off that article on Genesis 50:20. One of the most potentially frightening aspects of being a Christian is knowing that when you put your trust in Jesus, all hell takes arms against you intending evil upon your life. And yet what trumps that fear and evil is knowing that no matter what comes, God is the master weaver. He takes what is intended for evil and reweaves it for good. Of course, in your head, you're thinking, amen. And you're also asking a big question, one you're probably asking in your Steve Martin imitation. Um, you're saying, Pastor, why are you talking about Joseph in prison? We're studying Philippians. What are you, some wild and crazy guy? Great question. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for asking. Um, I mentioned Joseph and the outcome of his horrors because Joseph appears to have been on the mind of the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the Philippians from his own unfair imprisonment. Uh, open your Bible to Philippians chapter 1. Paul's imprisoned in Rome, and he writes this. Let's read verses 12 through 14. Now I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to, that what has happened to me has actually resulted in the advance of the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is in the cause of Christ. Most of the brothers in the Lord have gained confidence from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the message fearlessly. As we headline in our notes, um, you got a worship guide when you came and open it up, you'll see the headline in there, evil is being used for good. Paul is experiencing the same awesome blessing of Joseph. By the way, 
Joseph learned how evil is used for God's good roughly 1,900 years before Paul did. And, and Paul learned about God's amazing plot twists about 1,900 years before us. Now it's our turn to discover how God uses evil for good. There are three major ways for a person to do that. There are three things that help us see how God uses evil for good. First, we recognize the centrality of the Lord. For, for Joseph, as for Paul, as for us, the turning point is when we realize that everything is about God. He has me in his hand. He gives gifts to me so I can enjoy his work. He gives problems to me so I can grow in him. For Paul, clarity is evidence in his verbiage. Look at his verbiage. The gospel, the cause of Christ, the Lord. This is all about the Lord Jesus. Everything is. One of the reasons modern folks have so much trouble understanding Scripture is that our entire focus tends to be on self. That's why people change the Scripture. You know, that's why we change Scripture to make it say what we desire it to say, because human focus is all about doing and getting what we want. The reason verses 12 through 14 seem odd to people, and, and they really do, is that Paul is devoid of self-centeredness here. His eyes are on Jesus. I was reading in our living room one day when a bunch of teenagers were playing, uh, playing games on the floor. Uh, they were into a board game, and being teenagers, they fairly quickly forgot that I was there. And I just was reading my book and enjoying the chatter in the background when suddenly I stopped reading and my ears really perked up. I knew better than to really move or show alarm, but I heard something really interesting. One of my sons was telling about a, a oft-repeated activity from his childhood. And he was telling the group this, and he was repeating it, and he said, yes, that's what I said. Dad used to make us do grenade practice. He would throw a piece of candy on the floor, and we were supposed to immediately cover it up with our body. We were taught to give ourselves up in order to save others, okay? One of his friends was really upset by this, and she said, oh, what? Your dad always seems so nice. That's really mean. I mean, to tell your kid to be ready to die, doesn't your dad love you? I sat so still, I just didn't move, and I just prayed, and inside I smiled as my boy said this in response. He said, well, what do you think love is? Life isn't about me. Anyway, I'm a Christian, so I'm guaranteed heaven when I die, and there's nothing more loving than wanting that for someone, close quote. Now, there are plenty of other moments where my parenting shows the results that I have spoiled a kid, but in that one moment, my son showed that he has the first tool that is needed. Here's the first tool that is needed for you to have eyes to see that good comes out of evil. He knows that life isn't all about him. Look, it's actually very simple. If you make life all about you, then even if you are a Christian, you will miss the joy and the power that is only found when God is central, when he is your everything. Conversely, if you recognize and live by the truth that life is about the Lord, then all the things that concern you will become properly placed in priority because you know that God accomplishes what concerns you. All God's people said, amen. The second great tool for seeing good come out of evil is to take every opportunity to advance the gospel. That's, that's what Paul does. Just like Joseph in the Egyptian prison spoke of Yahweh. Joseph testified to God's singularity. So Paul in pagan Rome is telling the good news of God's love. In Philippi, the church that is first receiving this letter, they were a city where this, this particular phrase that he uses here had to have struck them very, very interestingly. You see, Philippi, let me tell you a little bit about it. They were a city of outsized importance in the first century. Um, there had been a massive Roman civil war, and they backed a young guy named Octavian. 
was only 18 years old. It was kind of a bold move, but they backed him and helped him win a famous battle at Philippi. Later, Octavian won the Civil War and became known, you probably have heard of him, as Caesar Augustus. The, the Senate declared him Augustus. When he was declared Augustus, he went back to Philippi and remembered how they had helped him, and he made the city the only official Roman colony in the entire area. That, that meant a number of things. It meant everyone there was an official Roman citizen, which is huge. It also meant they were exempt from most taxation for all of their lives. Let's move to Philippi. Anyway, um, he also apparently settled a bunch of praetorians uh, in Philippi and, and settled them there. So as a Roman city, Philippi was allowed, and they didn't do it very often, but they were allowed to issue coinage. And they one time issued a coin not too long uh, before this was written, they issued a coin that declared their important things. That's what people do when you issue a coin, you put what's important to you on the coin. Look what they put on the coin. The two things that are important to the Philippians. The victory of Augustus, you see that? Vic, aug, victory of Augustus. And on the obverse side, on the other side, cohort praetoria. That's what mattered to them, was the praetorian cohort. And now, a, a generation after Augustus' death, the children and grandchildren of those Praetorians who settled at Philippi, they're reading Paul's letter from Rome. And they hear verse 13 say, the gospel has become known throughout the whole Praetorion. You see that? Now, imperial guard is how my Bible puts it, but that requires a little explanation. Sometimes people get confused on this. Um, later in history, the Praetorian guard would become very defined. They would become a very powerful force. They would, they would guard and, and create and depose Roman emperors almost at will. But at this point, in the first century, the Praetorians were simply a strong bodyguard force around some one official. The main thing you need to know is they were loyal to one official, not to the state. Here's how one famous historian describes the Praetorian at this point, first century. Uh, Guy de la Bayere, he says, Praetorian guards were experienced soldiers paid far beyond normal legions. They were given the rank, we're talking about the common Praetorian soldier, given the rank or at least the pay and conditions of centurions. That's a lot of money. Their loyalty to a person and not the state caused considerable disquiet among the senators. Okay. With that in mind, go back to the text and it becomes clear what an astonishing thing Paul is saying. The Praetorians, folks, are the most self-centered bunch in the Roman military, and the Roman military dominated Mediterranean society. These guys are only about the pay, and their pay is good. Their loyalty is limited to the one person who can advance their self-interests, and yet they, Praetorians, are hearing and passing on the good news of salvation in Jesus. Paul doesn't just mention Praetorians only because their forerunners settled in Philippi. That's true, but he mentions Praetorians specifically because if the good news of God's salvation can inundate them, well, then it can surely penetrate anywhere. How does one see good coming out of evil, recognize the centrality of God and the advance of his gospel of love? Paul sees that occurring among the imperial bodyguard. He, he opens his eyes to this opportunity and he grabs a chance to advance the gospel even under unfair persecution surrounded by these really selfish people. And this, of course, emboldens the rest of the Christians in Rome. They share the truth that God so loves people that Jesus, God the Son, died for human sins. The great Son of God the Father really did throw himself on the grenade for every one of us. He then rose from the grave so that those who trust in him can experience abundant eternal life. When we were looking at this text, Martin McDonald of our pulpit team uh, had a really pithy way of applying this. Look what Martin wrote. 
He said, God allows us to experience difficult circumstances for His glory. We must not pity ourselves, but rather look for opportunities to bless others with the gospel. Our behavior and standing fast in the midst of challenging circumstance can enhance our testimony as well as be an encouragement to other Christians. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, let's read the next paragraph. Go to verse 15. Verse 15. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and strife, but others out of goodwill. They do so out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, seeking to cause me anxiety in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Just that in every way, whether out of false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Stop there. Here's the third key to finding, to seeing evil used for good. Keep the main thing, the main thing. That is a leadership catchphrase that fits what Paul sees here. Despite all the weirdness of the people around him and even the people that are Christians, Paul is content because the main thing is still the main thing. Christ is proclaimed. Speaking of catchphrases, the early 21st century has a very strange one. It's really weird. I don't know if it's going to last very long, but right now in human history, just about every question that people ask is answered by, it's all good. It's good. I'm good. Would you like some more to eat? It's all good. Is that yes? No, I, I'm good. It, it, we use this for everything. And by the way, it's not just us. In Germany right now, everybody says alles klar all the time. In Russia, people all the time, all they say is niet problem, niet problem, right? In, in Hawaii, no worries, no worries, man. Hang loose, right? It, it, it's fascinating. Paul looks at the mess around him in Rome and he says, okay, no worries, no worries, man. It's all good. And why, how can he say that? He's in prison. Surrounded by difficult, strange, selfish people. But he's okay. It's all good. You know why? Because the main thing is what matters. And the main thing is doing great. You think you would be so clear-sighted in that situation? Would you be that positive? I mean, it's not like Paul didn't battle bad theology or bad motives. He certainly did. But he was able to be at peace because he remained primarily focused on the main thing. Cindy Sharp of our pulpit team uh, sent me this observation. This is brilliant. She wrote and said, sometimes we get sidetracked. The dog vomits on the new carpet. The toddlers dump potato chips all over the kitchen, which is probably why the dog vomited. <laughs> you forgot to pay the utilities bill because you were busy picking up potato chips and vomit. Mired down in, well, vomit, we forget about the main thing. But the gospel of Jesus is so beautiful that it is vomit-proof. It is brilliance coated in Teflon, a sparkling white garment that will not be stained. Sun with no sunburn, rain with no mud, life and joy everlasting. Wow, that is the main thing and is worth remembering and sharing even as we deal with messes. Close quote. Paul is mired in the vomit of a nasty situation here, and yet he can rejoice because he sees the beauty of the main thing. And that, my friends, makes all the difference. Corey Tim Boom spent years in a German concentration camp. Her supposed crime was that she saved Jews, right? She saw her entire family murdered by Nazis. And yet, this woman was always rejoicing. I only met her one time, and she was rejoicing when I met her. Here was her secret. If you look at the world, you'll be distressed, she said. If you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look at Christ, you'll be at rest. Isn't that well said? She said it many times, most especially in her book, Tramp for the Lord. Look at the world, you'll be distressed. Look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look at Christ, you'll be at rest. There is always going to be potato chip barf this side of heaven. 
There is. Nazis are part of the journey. But we can rejoice and we can thrive if we will keep the main thing the main thing. Paul smiles even though Christian brethren are wanting to upstage him. Do you see that? There's, there's weird conflict within the Christian community. But it's all good. A few years ago, I learned that we get to do the same. Even when, even when people seem to be upstaging us, we can rejoice and know that it's all good. Um, I was helping this church planter get started in Frisco. It's something that, that you give me the time to do, and I appreciate that, and I'm honored to do it. Uh, this particular church, I had spent even more time than usual with the church planter and uh, really, really like this guy, still do. He's just fantastic, and a lot of time listening and praying and helping and, and even finding families that I thought would fit their work well and referring families to him. It was great. And, uh, <clears throat> and then they uh, played our team in softball one night. They brand new church. They got their team together. And a buddy of mine was the umpire for that game. And he walked over to tell them it was time to start the game. And he happened to overhear this. The pastor is in the huddle with all of his team. And he hears him saying, I don't care if we win another game all year. We have got to win this one. We must beat Frisco Bible. <laughs> I have no idea. I don't know if they won or lost, but I found that very funny. It doesn't matter. It's all good, right? Paul's saying, look, if there's fun competition or even silly envy, it doesn't matter. We praise God for that church. We praise God for all the churches in Frisco. We are blessed with a marvelous Christian alliance here, and, and we get to rejoice just as Paul did. And by the way, just so you know, our situation is like the apostles as well. There are so many times that churches around us encourage us that pastor that I told you about from a few years ago, he sent me a note just two weeks ago, and it's totally sincere. This is a marvelous guy. Here's a note he sent just two weeks ago. It said, Wayne, just wanted to say how thankful we are for Frisco Bible. We need your work. You're kind of a forward defense for all of us. I pray especially for you guys because when you are strong, we're all stronger. Amen. In every way, Christ is proclaimed. That is the main thing. All God's people said... All right, let's read the next thought section, verse uh, 16. <clears throat> I'm sorry, verse 18. Pick it up at the end of verse 18 where we left off. Yes, and I will rejoice because I know this will lead to my deliverance through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all boldness, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Here's why Paul's able to smile and rejoice, because we win, which is the headline atop the right side of your notes, we win. A moment ago, we heard from Corey Tim Boom, right? Well, let me share another Corey story. This is a, a story about how we cannot lose. This one comes from our retired missionary, Dan Bolin. Dan Bolin, our retired missionary, wrote this. 45 years ago, Corey Tim Boom spoke in my college chapel, says Dan. The day before, word leaked through the Christian grapevine, and the administration feared that our auditorium would be packed with guests leaving no room for students. A few of us were asked to keep the visitors at bay until the students were seated. As we guarded the entryway, the swelling crowd of little blue-haired ladies was growing restless. One lady toddled up to me, and I began my spiel about the students' required attendance, that she'd need to wait outside. She interrupted me, smiled, and said, <coughs> Oh, that will never do. I'm to be the speaker. <laughs> During chapel, through her mesmerizing Dutch brogue, she recounted numerous atrocities, and how in the midst of her despair, she read the last chapter of Revelation. There she realized the powerful truth that in the end, Viven! Viven! I've read the end of the story, and Viven! So knowing that, the apostle has 
has a couple of big statements for it. First is, we should rejoice over deliverance. That's what Paul does in 18 through 20. No, rejoice with deliverance. Look at the aspects of deliverance he mentions. Prayers. God uses prayer in deliverance. God uses human prayers in his sovereign will. In a fashion not totally revealed to us, prayer makes a massive difference. In fact, not at all to pick on his great statement, but Max Lucado's somewhat wrong in saying that Satan weaves and God weaves. It's all under God's weaving plan. He is sovereign, and he uses everything, and he uses human prayer. The Holy Spirit is a major mover in this deliverance. Paul is set free because of God the Spirit. It's a, it's a brilliant combination of God and mankind working together for Paul's deliverance. Now, don't misunderstand the meaning of the deliverance here. Look at 18. Verse, this, in verse 18, is a direct reference back to the proclamation of Jesus. Mm. Paul cares about physically getting out of prison, sure. But what matters most is the freedom that is found in focusing on the main thing, which is Jesus. So unlike other texts he wrote, Philippians 1 is not about physical deliverance. Rather, it's the rescue of knowing that we win. That's the rescue, this spiritual internal knowledge that we win. And if we look at verse 20, we see there's another deliverance here. It is the deliverance from anything that would embarrass our Lord. Very few things have ever caused me to awaken to the sound of my own screaming. This is one of the few, the concern that I will embarrass Jesus Christ. Each of us is eminently capable of behaving like a fool, right? And I live with a healthy fear of giving people a reason to discredit the gospel of Jesus. Now, of course, that fear mustn't lead to phobia. Like Paul, I can be confident that Jesus will, remember Philippians 1, 6, he will complete his good work in me. I'm not fearful of losing my salvation. I'm just so thankful for God's grace that I don't want to embarrass him. That's why Paul has such great confidence in verse 20. The Greek term we translate hope, it's different from the way we use the word hope. It's not wishful thinking. This hope is something that is expected. It is certain. And just to be clear that we understand that we can live without shaming Jesus, Paul adds eager expectation before el peace, before hope. This this is how one rejoices in deliverance, by prayer and the Holy Spirit to live in expectation that we can, even in these bodies, we can honor Jesus. Now, think on that for a moment, and you'll realize this is one of the most seriously deficient ingredients in modern American culture, right? Think about modern American culture. Deliverance to people today is understood in physical terms only, only physical terms and usually a very selfish slant on those. That's what we call deliverance. We, we pervert it almost as often as we do the word justice. Many people today don't grasp the solidity of hope. Even among Christians, hope is, is sort of a maybe hope, not a certainty. People don't understand, so many people around us don't understand the very first thing about living with honor. This idea of living with honor, with boldness, unashamed, that, that's completely... That's Greek to them. And thus, because of that, because of that, there is very little joy. Now, we can stand around here and, and lament that malaise, or we can do something about it. And I think God would have us address this, and I think we should begin right here in Collin County, Texas. I was recently at lunch with our county judge in Collin County, Chris Hill, and our district attorney, Greg Willis, was there. And they have launched a new program to help spread the joy of deliverance. And we got into conversation about this, and they sent me the following news clip. Take a look. 
Well, only on five in Collin County, first-time criminal offenders are getting a second chance. It's really interesting. Instead of jail time, they could get life coaching and job training. This idea is new for the county, and NBC5's Gianna Zoga shows us why the DA's office is giving this a shot. Wrong place, wrong time. Hanging out with people I wasn't supposed to be. When Josh Nichols was caught with a small amount of marijuana last year, he says he was in the wrong crowd, without a steady job, and facing a possession charge on his record. Today, that won't have to define his future. Nichols is part of the inaugural class of the Collin County DA's Path 2 Diversion Program. It gives nonviolent offenders a chance to get their charge dismissed as long as they complete required life skills and training classes. They're also connected to mentors and jobs. David Russell hired Nichols last December. I think he said 15 to 20 words the whole time, couldn't make eye contact, uh, didn't have a history, didn't have a resume. Um, it was just very raw, uh, but he wanted to try. Russell has since promoted him. I mean, it didn't happen overnight, uh, but you give somebody trust and then allow them to grow in that, and he has done that. As we looked around, we saw there's a lot of people who want to change who don't have the resources or the know-how or the support to do it. DA Greg Willis's office partnered with the nonprofit Pivot Staffing Group to screen candidates. We're looking for just that willingness to change and the desire to do good. The program is meant to be intense and not everyone makes it. Out of 15 who started last year, nine are graduating. Let's take a moment to think about the journey that you've had to take to get here today. Nichols says he hasn't talked to his old friends in more than a year. Feels right. This feels better. And he's now committed to breaking the cycle and redefining what justice could look like. That was Deanna Zoga reporting. And once graduates finish the diversion program, prosecutors will file to dismiss their charges and they can apply to have their record expunged. They now have 11 or 100 applicants in the pipeline for the next class. The program participants can't have a violent record and only certain crimes are eligible. D.A. Willis wrote, uh, wrote me this note after our lunch. Um, he said, we believe we can change the trajectory of people's lives through training, life coaching, job placement, and expungement. Thanks again for your time last week. I appreciate your heart for making a difference in our community. He went on. He said, Wayne, there are two primary ways that we need help. Number one, we need business leaders who would be open to employing people who are part of the diversion program. We will tailor what works best for their business. And number two, we need coaches and mentors for participants in the program so we can provide real-life coaching. Let me just inject a little note here. These are not these wonderful people that God loves and we love that are all around you. Uh, these, these aren't children who've grown up in church and then do something stupid and, and, and have a wonderful support system to help them grow and to, and to pull them up and to kick them in the fanny and do the things that accountable Christians do. That, that these, these are folks who don't know you should wash your hands before you eat, okay? And I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. These are wonderful people that don't have any idea of how to live honorably or wisely or well. And there's a lot of coaching that's needed. Some of you are school counselors and you're nodding your heads. Um, we need coaches and mentors for participants of the program so we can provide real life coaching for them so they'll be able to sustain the life change they desire. Now look, the main application of these verses is spiritual, that we rejoice over our sure hope in Jesus. We win. The main application is we pray and walk in the Spirit so that spiritual deliverance spreads. But could I suggest, please, a physical application as well? 
With the breakdown of the family all around us, we have hundreds of people who don't know the basics about living, much less living honorably. Will you help them? If you're willing to take a few hours a week to mentor, then please write me. I'll pass it on to the DA. You, you can just put it on the tear-off part of your bulletin and drop it in the offering today. If, you, if you're willing to offer a job to somebody who really is going through the hard work to get straight, then write me. I'll connect you with the county. And remember, the physical is not at odds with the spiritual. <laughs> you saw nine people graduate in that little video clip. By the way, there's not 100 in the pipeline. That was true when she did that report two months ago. There are 300 now that they need help with, and the numbers grow every day. Um, of the nine you saw in that video, three of those came to Christ during their year. A couple of them led to Christ by their mentor, another one by his boss. We should rejoice in that deliverance. Amen? All right, let's finish the section, 21 through 26. For me, living is Christ and dying is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I'm pressured by both. I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I'm persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of me, your confidence may grow in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. We win, Vivin. That means Christians can rejoice in deliverance. And look at what we just read. The severity of an issue changes nothing. Paul is talking about life and death here. Changes nothing, because either way, he wins in Jesus. And Paul, by the way, he's not suicidal here. He's just reflective. The issue facing us makes no difference when we know that we win. Even death is an opportunity to enjoy the Lord and glorify Him forever. Helen Peters was a 90-something-year-old nursing home resident. She was confined to a wheelchair every single day, and yet she was always a delight. When, when one of our friends asked her why she was so joyful, Helen said this, You know, when you're prepared to die, that's when you really find out how to live. She gets at least half of Paul's point. She gets that dying is gain. Dying is gain. We have nothing to lose. Paradise awaits everyone who is a believer in Jesus. And there are rewards for good deeds that were done by God's will from right motives. The other half of Paul's point is that to live is Christ. Now what does that mean? To live is Christ. Dying is gain, I get that. What's live is Christ? Um, Gene Getz has a great question that he put in his book on Philippians. He says, if you were totally honest... What word or words would you put in this blank? For me, to live is blank. Be honest. What goes there? What, what is your life really all about? For me, to live is money. My friends, my house, entertainment, fun, school, my family, myself, work, sports, sex, or something else. Right? I mean, most of us are going to put something else in there. And, and, and don't misunderstand, all these are important. Some of those are are quite frankly severe issues. But that changes nothing. Because nothing is as significant as Jesus. If we live for anything less than Christ, we are, let's be honest here, we are idolatrous and wasteful. Wholehearted devotion to Jesus makes us really live. It gives us the willingness to stay here in this broken world, living for the benefit of others, bringing glory to Jesus, and making Him known regardless of the consequences. Life can be so different, so joyful when we see that evil is being used for good, right? And when we remember that we win, amen? In response, Paul reminds us to walk worthily. Walk worthy of that victory. You're going to win. 
So live this way, verses 27 through 30. Just one thing. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, working side by side for the faith that comes from the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your deliverance, and this is from God. For it has been given to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, having the same struggles that you saw I had and now hear that I have. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Mm. That doesn't mean we earn salvation. We, we do not and cannot make ourselves right before God. It means we Christians live like we're different. We act like, the, like, like who we are, like the adopted children of God. To help us zero in on what it means to live worthy of the gospel, Paul inspi God inspires a parallel passage in another of Paul's letters, the book of Ephesians. Read with me. Uh, you take the underlying text in Ephesians chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Amen. We win. Good comes from evil. So walk worthily. How? How should we walk worthily? Well, the first thing is by unity. L look at that Ephesians passage. Humility, gentleness, patience, unity. Look at all the unifying terms in Philippians 1.27. One spirit, one mind, working side by side. It's all about unity. If you're going to walk worthily, you cannot do so unless you're walking by unity. Trent Reznor of the rock band Nine Inch Nails is not a writer of Paul's caliber, but he does a really nice job with this concept that, that you can only live worthily, you can walk worthily if you understand unity. He, he wrote a, a poem called We're in This Together. Here's part of it. We're in this together now. None of them can stop us now. We'll make it through somehow, you and me. We should live our lives like changed people, and we do so by unity. It's how we make it through to our certain victory. None of them can stop us now. We also walk with confident courage from God. There's no need to give in to fear. We should be courageous and confident. This is a major difference from all mere religions. You see, in biblical grace, the Christian knows that he or she is in God's hand. Not so for those who try to earn their salvation. They're never confident. You know why? Because they, they feel that they can lose their salvation at any time. If their grip ever slips, if they ever don't have enough power in themselves, then, then they're going to fall. They, they can never experience confident courage from God. You Christians who are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone, you know better. You know that no matter how ugly things get, we are held by God. Yes, I know the world is going to hell in a handbasket, but God has overcome the world, right? We have no reason to come unglued just because the clouds over us grow dark. We can't, we can't and should be concerned, but we can be calm and courageous in the storm. Paul points out in verse 28, that intimidates our opponents. It does. They, they, I'm telling you, they feel destruction. They feel a loss of power when they look at you and you are just smiling through the storm. I mentioned the other day how much I enjoyed this book, Michael Jones' book on Edward the Black Prince. Um, he has a great observation on the impact of unity. He says this, Armies are weakened by fear and galvanized by anger. But when soldiers find out of love, love for their cause, love for their comrades, they gain a power 
and a unity of purpose. Close quote. Here's how you walk worthily, by unity and confident courage. And just like a confident army going into battle, we are unsurprised by conflict, right? You see that in the, in the passage? Paul says, you saw this in me, it's happening again. Armies are not surprised when there's a battle. That's what they're for. Far from being shocked, we are honored to suffer for Christ. Struggles are a, are a blessing and a challenge that Jesus promised us from the very beginning. Yes, conflict and pain and stress are horrible. Of course they are, but we're not shocked by their presence. We're not even shocked by unfair persecution because we've seen it all before. Again, Martin McDonald summarized really well. He wrote me and he said this, The reason to walk worthily is that we have been saved by the Lord's hand and not our own. Therefore, we are secure in Him and beholden to Him in gratitude. That makes it a great honor to suffer for the sake of Christ. Close quote. Here's how Dan Boland finished up that lesson on Corey Tim Boom we read from earlier. Here's how he finished up. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. As we move toward Easter, says Dan, we're reminded of Easter's unshakable hope that in the end, we win. Don't let circumstances, no matter how excruciating, don't let circumstances obscure that reality. Jesus wins. Amen? We must walk worthily because we know the end of the story. We know that we win. We have eyes to see how good keeps coming even from evil. Pray with me to that end. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters that we may see the truth of your continual triumph because we keep the main thing the main thing. We make Jesus the center of life. We work to advance the gospel no matter what. Lord, guide us to rejoice over our sure deliverance no matter the earthly pain that we face. Transform us, Lord, in a nutshell. Transform us so we walk worthily of our certain salvation. And I pray for anyone who is not sure of their deliverance because they have never trusted Jesus. Lord, they're missing out. They're missing the whole point of life now, not to mention eternity. Please draw them to you right now. Listen, if you, if you have never trusted in Jesus, do so right now. He, God, the Son, literally threw himself on the grenade. He died on a Roman cross just for you. That he, the perfect one, could pay for your sin because no one else can. And then he rose from the dead. So that if you will believe on him, you have everlasting life. Talk to God right now. Just, just tell him, Lord, I understand. I cannot save myself. I'm, I'm not the redeemer. I can't hold on. No one can. But you, you've made a way for me. You died for me and rose from the dead. And I'll take that salvation. I receive Jesus as my Savior. I believe Him. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, raise your hand. Raise your hand, please. Good. Excellent. Father, I pray for all of us believers in Jesus here that we will indeed rejoice in our deliverance. In Jesus' name, amen.